Psalm 49, verse number 1, the Bible says, Hear this, all ye people. Are you a people? So you better hear it. Let's all just tune in today. Sometimes you might be able to disqualify yourself from the sermon. Just kind of, well, he's preaching about prayer today and I'm a prayer warrior, so I don't need to listen. I, I know I've never been in that place, but maybe some people do. But if you fall under the category of being a person, this sermon, this message, this passage of scripture is applicable to you. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the world. It doesn't matter who you've been cheering for in the Olympics. If you are an inhabitant of the world, this message is for you. Both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to, to, to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the heart. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil? When the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beast's. That perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings, Selah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For He shall receive me. Selah. Let's pray. Father, this morning we humbly ask that You would help us rightly interpret this passage of Scripture. And if we come up with the right interpretation, then Lord, may Your Holy Spirit come up with the right application. That for each of us, this has meaning The message is for all inhabitants of the world, for every person in this place this morning. And we ask, Lord, that your power and your spirit would be effectual to accomplish that which you would will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an elderly man who was feeling his age one day, and he just kind of spoke up and began to complain and say to anyone that would listen. He said, I've sure gotten old. I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replacement, new knees. I've fought prostate cancer and diabetes. I'm half blind. I can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine takeoff. I take 40 different medications that make me dizzy, winded, and subject to blackouts. I have bouts with dementia. I have poor circulation. 
I can hardly feel my hands and feet anymore. I can't remember if I'm 89 or 92. I've already buried most of my friends, but thank God I still have my driver's license. (laughs) Now certainly, most of us can identify with this man in one way or another. Uh, Many of us, as we age, we start to deal with the symptoms of our condition. Our condition being that, that we are aging. We're all getting older. None of us have the curious case of Benjamin Button going on in our lives. We're all getting closer to the grave. And for most of us, with every day we face these signs, and we, we, it's indicated to us by little things like getting out of bed in the morning and our knees popping, or, or maybe every prescription pill that has to be filed designated to the day that we're supposed to take it. Or perhaps it's just the pain, the ever-present pain in our back. And all of these are indicators that, guess what? You're getting older. Because of that, we understand that we'll eventually face death. It doesn't matter really what you think about death, whether you fear it, whether you look forward to it. Death is the punctuation mark of everybody's life. It ends it all for us. Nobody escapes it. Nobody gets around it. Even within the ministry of Jesus, it was ever present. He lost his father to death. He lost a good friend, Lazarus, to death. And he himself had to die. Death is a reality of the human existence. That's why Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, came up and said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 2, There is a time to be born and a time to die. It begins and it ends there in death. Now since this is a reality and that death will face us all one day, to not care about it would be foolish. To just dismiss it. And think that we have this invincibility complex and nothing will ever get to us. That's just folly. I remember as a teenager, I thought I was a little bit more invincible than I believe I am today. Nothing can touch me, but I want you to know, friend, I've attended funerals of infants, of of children, of teenagers, of middle-aged men cut down in the prime of their life. Now, to just dismiss the reality of our mortality is foolishness. But to despair over this is futile. It just, it's futile. You you can fret over it. You can worry about it. In fact, you can watch TV shows about it. There are wealthy people in our civilization trying to come up with ways to thwart death and maybe freeze themselves so that one day when science advances to the point where it gets there, they can unfreeze or thaw. That's two similar things. I just think one's actually a word. (laughs) They're about the same, but I think uh, they say, well, when science gets to the place, they'll just thaw me out and I'll live forever to fret over it really is pointless. Death is a reality for us all. But to prepare for it is fitting. It doesn't help to dismiss it. It doesn't help to obsess over it. But to be attentive to it is appropriate. This is what this psalm is written for. 
to speak to the ever-present reality that death will eventually look us all right in the eye and tell us it's our time to go. This is a preparation for your death date. And he speaks of these three dark realities. There's probably more, but we'll speak on three dark realities of death this morning. I call them dark realities because he even says in verse 4, I will open my dark sayings upon the harp. Now, I don't mean this as dark as in gloomy and doomy. I mean this as dark as most people cannot see these truths. Most people don't understand it. Most people don't think about it. In fact, even around the dinner table, if you ever bring up the dialogue of, well, I wonder one day how I'm going to die, certainly your mother is going to tell you, don't talk about those sorts of things. And that's appropriate. But, but we must be prepared for this eventual date that will one day face us all. And these sayings are dark in that they are not illuminated to most people. So we want to come up and understand what these three dark sayings are. I want you to see, first of all, this morning, here's the first thought. All men, die, uh, all men do not live the same, but all men die the same. Even within our passage, the uh, comparison is made between the wealthy and the poor. Between those who are great and those who are the least. Uh, verse number 2 says, both low and high, rich and poor. Verse number 10 says, for he seeth that wise men die. Likewise the fool and the brutish person uh, perish. And they leave their wealth to others. You see, the reality is, all men do not live the same. And I don't have to spend much time proving this point to you. But we could take you to some communities in our, uh, in our area. That uh, every house on the lot has wills. And then I could take you to some communities in our neighborhood where they have wills, but they're not on their house. They're just in the garage, in their six, seven-seater garage, and then they have a kit car for each kid, and then they have a backup car for when they need to run to soccer practice. We could take you to houses that are by every definition of the word, mansions, and then I could take you to other houses that really aren't mansions at all. Even in the Bible, Jesus spoke of uh, two men, a rich man who uh, was, lived sumptuously and clothed with fine linen and was dressed in purple each and every day. And man, everything was good in his life. But then Jesus spoke about a poor man named Lazarus who sat at his gate and begged and the dogs came to lick from his sores. You see, not all men live the same way. Some live in this life lavishly. They have every, meet, every need in their life met. They have every desire in their heart fulfilled. They think they have heaven here on earth. And this passage not only references both of these parties, the, the extreme, the, the rich man and the poor man and everybody in between, it not only references them, but this passage is spoken to them. That's why he opens it up and he says, all ye inhabitants of the world, if you are a people, you need to listen in. Because even within our congregation this morning, there are people that have healthy incomes. There are people that are doing quite well for themselves. My wife started up a bread business not long ago. 
people. Uh, she cooked some bread for holidays, and uh, it was just a way of, uh, she wanted to be profitable, I guess. She read Proverbs 31 and said, I need to shape up. And so she started baking bread. She asked me if it was okay, and I said, sure, baby, go make merchandise. That's fine. And so she started baking some bread, and man, we had people coming around, preacher, y'all doing okay? Do y'all need some, do y'all need some money on the side? I was like, no, man, Amy's got the dough. Uh, you, you got it. Y'all got it. And so people were worried about us. But the truth is, there are some people in this life that don't live such lavish lifestyles. People that fret where their next meal will come from. My wife and I were driving through Dallas just the other day and I saw there on the corner of a street a man with a sign that said, Every little bit helps. And in my mind I thought, uh, my heart immediately went out in pity to this man. And I said, what a sad thing that in our country, where there are people that throw away more food than, 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 than could feed all the streets of Dallas and Fort Worth combined, but uh, restaurants cast away food that's rejected by people every day. And, and I just thought, there's something broken. You have those that live in extravagant wealth and those that live in extreme poverty. Something's broken. And then you can ask Amy, as we sat there and watched this man, a verse came to my mind. And I told her, I said, you know what the Bible says about this? The poor ye have always with you. Now, I'm thankful for all the promises of the Bible, but that if Jesus said those words, that means poverty is a reality of the human existence. And our government can print more money and send more checks, but poverty in many ways reflects the sinful condition of man. See, I don't by any means want to judge the man because it could have been a series of hard circumstances that put him on that street corner. But I do know firsthand that there are people that because of their plight in life and because of their uh, attachment and familiarity with a particular sin, they stand on street corners with signs that say every, biddle, every little bit helps. And then every person that passes by and gives them a dollar bill, they take that and put that in their pocket. And then they run uh, as fast as they can to the nearest liquor store and they buy every bit of liquor that they can and they choose in that moment to in, 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 uh, embrace their sin and even set aside physical needs. They'll, they'll, you say, I'll take you and get some food. They say, I'm not really interested in food. My mind goes to ladies uh, that even this evening will be standing on the street corners selling themselves so that they might get their next high. In many ways, poverty reflects our sinful condition. That fleshly appetite that, that craves and cries out and longs to be fulfilled. You see, it doesn't really matter where you line up on the poverty scale or the wealth scale. All men do not live the same, but the point of this message is all men die the same. You know where that man on that street corner will end up one day? The grave. You know, quick, maybe quicker, maybe longer, but he's destined for the very same place you are. He's destined for the very same place that the wealthiest man in Burleson, Texas is. Because all men don't live the same, 
but we all die the same. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. You cannot buy your way out of this appointment. There's no way around it. You can't think about it long enough. You can't hire experts. You can't put enough pills in your body. You can't put enough plastic in your face. You cannot delay the inevitable truth that death will one day come and knock on your door. All men do not live the same, but all men do die the same. And he says in verse 4, he says, I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. What's this seemingly weird reference to a harp? This is a song. And, and the song is to be sung with the presence and accompaniment of a harp. He's saying, I'm going to deliver to you a very difficult truth, but I'm going to do it with some sweet music. He says in verse 3, my mouth shall speak wisdom. You know what's great about wisdom? Wisdom is applicable in the tents under the bridges and in the mansions on the hilltop. Wisdom applies to every man. They wear different clothes, but they all wisdom fits everyone. He says, I'm going to give you wisdom. And this wisdom works for every socioeconomic class. This, this wisdom works for every political persuasion. This, uh, per, uh, this uh, wisdom works for every ethnicity. Uh, it works for everyone. This is wisdom. And wisdom looks good on everyone. He says, this is the wisdom. All men do not live the same. But all men do die the same. But secondly, I want you to see this morning... All men do not experience poverty in this life, but all men do experience poverty in death. You see, since death is the great equating factor of all humankind, we're all going to be there one day. You know what Job said? Naked I came into the world, and naked I will go out. You came into this world with nothing, And you will leave this world with precisely the same thing. Now, if you can't take anything with you, what are you going to pay off God with? You stand before Him with nothing to barter. Nothing to negotiate. It's all you and nothing else. You have no materials. You have no goods. You have no wealth. You have no education. It's just you and nothing else before Almighty God. What do you do? This passage uses the contrast between rich and poor and wise and fool and high and low. And that is very appropriate throughout Scripture. But oftentimes when these things are mentioned, it goes a deeper level than just the physical ramifications of that. It goes a deeper level into the spiritual ramifications of that. You see, this is not speaking merely about a a physical or material wealth. This is speaking of a spiritual wealth and a spiritual bankruptcy. That's why the Bible doesn't just use financial terminology. Notice in verse 7. The Bible uses salvation terminology. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. 
Even skipping down to verse number 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. What is this saying? It's saying that though rich and poor are easily discerned in this life, death wipes the slate clean. And there's nobody there with a checkbook before Almighty God saying, Okay, God, well, how much does a ticket into your heaven cost? There's nobody there that has a bank account. There's nobody there with any wealth or anything to speak of and and maybe try to bribe God with. We all stand there before God undone only to answer for the deeds of our life. And this spiritual bankruptcy must be recognized by every man. The fact that we have nothing to offer God must be recognized in your life. Jesus began the Beatitudes, and I think there's a lot of confusion on what the Beatitudes are. But He said this, the very first one in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor. Wait, it doesn't stop there. In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is He talking about? He is again not speaking of material wealth. He is speaking of a spiritual bankruptcy. A realization that every man is a sinner. A realization that the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that seeketh God. There is none that understandeth. There is none that doeth good. We are all together become unprofitable. We are all gone out of the way. We are not pleasing God with the deeds of our life. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh shall no flesh be justified. We cannot do enough good to stand before God and say, You know what, God, I really impressed you, didn't I? We are on that day beggars and paupers before Almighty God. Spiritually undone and need of payment by someone else. And that is the reference why verse number 7 and verse number 8 speak of redemption of a brother. In the Old Testament, uh, you could go redeem the debt of another, a family member. Oftentimes called a kinsman redeemer. But you could go and say your brother-in-law, Craig, made a lot of bad decisions. And he got himself in a bad way. And he made some real mistakes. And he got a little in over his head. I, as the loving brother-in-law that I am, could go to Craig's aid. And I could write a check from my own bank account to cover the debt. If I don't cover the debt, Craig has to serve as a servant or a slave to pay off his own debt. But if I, as the loving brother-in-law that I am, come in, save the day, write the check, pay his debt, Craig is free. And this is the application. A debt had to be paid. A ransom had to be given. That's why the Bible says Jesus came not to minister, but to, uh, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the great eternal ransom of the soul. He is the Redeemer of our soul. He paid the payment that we could not pay, and He died the death that we could not die, so that we might have the life that we do not deserve. Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer of our soul. We stand on that day as 
before God, undone and broken before Him. It is appointed unto man all once to die. After this, the judgment. And on that judgment day, we're broke. We're we're undone. We have nothing to offer and nothing to barter with. And we're just there saying, God, I just don't have an answer. And at that very moment, Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, steps in and He says, yes, but I paid the price on Calvary's tree. And I died for His sins and I redeemed his soul he could not do it but I have done it he could not overcome but I overcame Jesus Christ is the salvation of our soul you see we are all we don't all live the same way but we all die the same way and all men do not experience poverty in this life but in the next we all experience poverty But the third eternal truth is this. All men do not enjoy death. But some men enjoy comfort in death. Verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For He shall receive me. You see, if there is nothing after this life, then nothing matters. That's the reason the greatest human philosophers all become fatalist. There's nothing. It's all pointless. Vanity is vanity and vexation of spirit. Even Solomon got to the place in his own life where he was a sort of fatalist where everything was just pointless. Because if there is nothing after this life, then nothing in this life really matters at all. But if there is something after this life, then that's all that should matter. My daughter, Caitlin, always, always, always asks a hundred questions. My wife and I don't even tell them where we're going anymore. We don't tell them when we've got vacations coming up. Or we don't tell them when uh, we're going to take them out for a picnic. Because if we do, we say, hey girls, we're going to go do something. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we were thinking about going to go, we're going to go eat somewhere. Where are we going to go eat? Well, we were thinking about maybe going to Chili's. Do they have chicken strips? (laughs) Good grief. And she wants to know everything there is to know. And I appreciate it in one sense because she wants to be informed. She wants to know what's coming. She wants to know what to expect. Listen, I think we would all be wise to share from Caitlin's wisdom a little bit here and realize that it is okay to ask the question, what comes next? The Bible has the answer. Even in the Old Testament, the man of God by the name of Job, he said these words, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. You know what what a Redeemer is? It's someone that paid the price to set someone else free. I know my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my uh, skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What is he saying? He's saying, one day I believe that God will redeem me. 
He will redeem my soul first and my body later. One day, that which was put in the ground will be awakened. And in a moment of time, uh, this corruptible will put on incorruption. And this mortal will put on immortality. And in that moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Job says, I will stand and I will see God with these own eyes. Job believed in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus taught this same truth in John chapter 11. He says, uh, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Listen, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? You see, it is this hope and this assurance from the Lord... That if we will receive Him as the payment for our sins, and we will trust in Him as the only source of our eternal salvation, that one day, if we leave this world by way of death, we will in a moment of time be absent from this body and be present with the Lord. But if one day He decides to come back, which I believe He is deciding that very, same, that very thing today, if in that day he decides, and maybe it's today, and maybe it's tomorrow, that, you know, i got some big plans coming up, but nothing bigger than that. And if he decides to come back, and that day we'll leave this world in a moment of a twinkling of an eye, and we'll be in heaven with the Lord, that is a good and glorious day. And I'm looking forward to that day. But it, it's been my experience that even godly men... Do not embrace death as a friend. Paul called death the last enemy. Meaning, we're all at odds with this. I don't think Christians fear death, but I don't think any of us look forward to it. Dad always says it like this. uh, I'm looking forward to going to heaven, but I don't want to be on the next train out. So not all men enjoy death, but some of us, because of our hope in Jesus Christ, can be comforted in death. Knowing that in just a moment, you realize you're one heartbeat away from death? Let me ask you a question. You ever thought about this? Who promised you your next breath? Do you have a promissory note on that? You know exactly where that comes from. You have, a, you have a monopoly on the source of that. No, we're all totally dependent upon God for the very next breath of our, of our body. The next beat of our heart, how much control do you have over that? Does your mind consciously send signals down to your heart saying, Yep, keep on a ticking and I'll keep on a going. That's not the way it works. One breath. One heartbeat, one moment away, and we'll be looking that enemy in the face. But thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ, which has given us the victory even over that last enemy of death. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus Christ has overcome the greatest enemy of us all. He's faced the one that we could not vanquish and He has been victorious in it. He alone could deliver us the keys of heaven and hell. And now He stands offering eternal redemption for us all. Jesus Christ, the one hope of our eternal redemption. You see, but for Christians, 
we're in a predicament. Because though we recognize that we have times and things that need to be accomplished here, I do think all of us one day long to be in heaven. If we believe heaven's as good as what we say it is, why are we not all killing ourselves to get there? I mean, we we talk about it being a wonderful place full of the loved ones that have gone on before us. And by the way, the real fixture of heaven is not the streets of gold or the pearly gates. I get so sick of people talking about the streets of gold like that's going to be a sight to see. I get sick of people trying to uh, discourage the idea that God built mansions for people. Look, if the streets are made out of gold, do you think we're all going to be living in condos? This is folly. But in all the features of heaven, the grandest one to see is not the structures or the architecture. It is the one who paid the price for us all. It is the Son, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. The one that sits on the throne. Jesus is the feature of heaven. And we all look forward to the day, not when we can see the streets of gold or the crystal sea or... The many other things that I think people have made up to preach good funeral sermons. We all look forward to the day where we can be reunited with Jesus Christ. And like the hymn writer said, on that day my faith, that which has been just merely accepted by believing in God's word, my faith will become sight. And that which has been hopeful expectation will become reality to me. That is the hope of heaven. No wonder Paul put it like this. And we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It wasn't just that he was making the point that was the truth, that when we die, we are with the Lord. He was saying, I would rather be with the Lord. He goes on to say this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, for I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul understood he had a ministry. He had people who needed to help and teach, and and God wasn't done with him yet. But even within Paul's heart, he had a desire to be with Jesus in heaven. And that's comfort that so many people just do not have. That's hope that so many people just don't have. When my wife and I begin to go out of town, we start to uh, decide whose responsibilities are what. We often take our minivan. It's just the traveling wagon, man. I mean, we put a bed in that thing. We've got TVs in there. Every kid has headphones, the duct tape around their mouth. I mean, we just have a lot of... We've got this thing down to a science. And we begin to distribute responsibilities... Most of the time, my responsibilities have to do with the vehicle and the travel. So it'll be something like this. Okay, Andrew, you get the alignment done on the van, and nobody wants to fight a steering wheel the whole time. And You get the oil changed, and you go get it cleaned up and vacuumed out, and you make sure it's good and clean, and then you set up the bed so that when you're driving at night, Amy can be sleeping, seatbelts on, of course, uh, and then we, we take care of all this. And those are my responsibilities, and Amy's like... I'll do everything else involved with the trip. She's a bit of a workaholic, so she gets the snacks ready. 
We don't stop at them gas stations and pay a bunch of money for their snacks. We pack our own snacks and then we just use their restroom because we're not really patrons of that establishment. And so we, I mean, we do all this. She's got the kids' bags packed. She's got uh, our bags packed. And usually at some point the conversation happens and she says, do you want me to pack for you? And I come in the house, I'm so sweating from getting the van ready. I mean, I've got the travel bag on top of the car, and I'm like, oh yeah, babe, that'd be great if you'd just pack for me. She always packs for me, and usually we get up there, and she's done a good job, and I've got all the stuff I normally need. I'm not a real sophisticated man. I just pretty much need some ball shorts, a a t-shirt, and some sandals, and I can make it through most things except church. And so she does that for me. But when you come to this idea of death, nobody can pack for you. You can't really prepare for it in many senses. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know how it's going to happen. All you can do is make sure that when you die, you are prepared. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for them. You know what heaven is? Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. This is a real place that Jesus is fixing up for us. But the only way you get there is by belief on Him as Lord and Savior. And in that moment, you go from fearing death as as an enemy to embracing Him as a friend. Because at that point, death is nothing more than the vehicle you get in to make sure you can get to heaven. It's just the bus ride to the place that you've longed to go to. All men die. All men do not live the same, but all men die the same. All men do not experience poverty in this life, but all men experience poverty in the next life. And all men do not enjoy death, but some men enjoy comfort in death. Today I want to ask you a very simple question. It's one that we've asked as a church probably to tens of thousands of doors around our area. If you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven when you die? It's a very simple question. So many people talk about, I'm 98% sure. Well, that's 2%. You're going to end up in hell. The Bible says, these things have I written unto them that ye may know ye have eternal life. Uh, Salvation is a no-so kind of deal. And as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what the kingdom of heaven is? To simply boil it down, it is the realm of salvation. It is the place for people that are saved. You want to be a part of that kingdom? You must come to God and realize... Spiritually, you have nothing to offer. For by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God.